Section 11 of Castles in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Castles in the Air by Baroness Emushka Orksi. Chapter 5 The Toys. Part 2. A moment or two later, Monsieur Ernest Berti, or whatever his real name may have been, entered the room. Whether he had encountered his exquisite sister on the corridor or the stairs, I could not tell. His face in the dim light of the hanging lamp looked impenetrable and sinister. "'This way, Monsieur Barrault,' he said curtly. Just for one brief moment the thought occurred to me to throw myself upon him with my whole weight, which was considerable, and make a wild dash for the front door. But it was more than probable that I should be intercepted and brought back, after which no doubt I would be an object of suspicion to these rascals, and my life would not be worth an hour's purchase. With the young girl's warnings ringing in my ears, I felt that my one chance of safety, and of circumventing these criminals, lay in my seeming ingenuousness and complete guilelessness. I assumed a perfect professional manner, and followed my companion up the stairs. He ushered me into a room just above the one where I had been waiting up to now. Three men dressed in rough clothes were sitting at a table on which stood a couple of tankards and four empty pewter mugs. My employer offered me a glass of ale, which I declined. Then we got to work. At the first words which Monsieur Bertie uttered, I knew that all my surmises had been correct. Whether he himself was Monsieur Aristide Fournier or another partner of that firm, or some other rascal engaged in nefarious doings, I could not know. Certain it was that, through the medium of cipher words and phrases, which he thought were unintelligible to me, and which he ordered me to interpret into English, he was giving directions to the three men with regard to the convoying of contraband cargo over the frontier. There was much talk of toys and babies, the latter were to take a walk in the mountains and to avoid the thorns. The toys were to be securely fastened and well protected against water. It was obviously a case of mules, and the goods, the thorns, being the customs officials. By the time that we had finished, I was absolutely convinced in my mind that the cargo was one of English files or racers for it was evidently extraordinarily valuable, and not at all bulky, seeing that two babies were to carry all the toys for a considerable distance. The men, too, were obviously English. I tried the few words of Russian that I knew on them, and their faces remained perfectly blank. Yes, indeed, I was on the track of Monsieur Aristide Fournier, and of one of the most important halls of enemy goods, which had ever been made in France. Not only that I had also before me one of the most brutish criminals it had ever been my misfortune to come across. A bully, a fiend of cruelty, 
in very truth my fertile brain was seething with plans for eventually laying that abominable ruffian by the heels hanging would be a merciful punishment for such a miscreant yes indeed five thousand francs a goodly sum in those days sir was practically assured me but over and above mere lucre there was the certainty that in a few days time i should see the light of gratitude shining out of a pair of lustrous blue eyes and a winning smile chasing away the look of fear and of sorrow from the sweetest face i had seen for many a day despite the turmoil that was raging in my brain however i flatter myself that my manner with the rascals remained consistently calm business-like indifferent to all save to the work in hand the soi-disant ernest bertie spoke invariably in french either dictating his orders or seeking information and i made verbal translation into english of all that he said the seance lasted close upon an hour and presently i gathered that the affair was terminated and that i could consider myself dismissed i was about to take my leave having apparently completed my work when monsieur ernest bertie called me back with a curt command one moment monsieur barreau he said at monsieur's service i responded blandly as you see he continued these fellows do not know a word of french all along the way which they will have to traverse they will meet friendly outposts who will report to them on the condition of the roads and warn them of any danger that might be had their ignorance of our language may be a source of infinite peril to them they need an interpreter to accompany them over the mountains he paused a moment or two then added abruptly would you care to go the matter is important he went on quietly and i am willing to pay you it means a couple of nights journey a halt in the mountains during the day and there will be ten thousand francs for you if the toys reach st claude safely i suppose that something in my face betrayed the eagerness which i felt here was indeed the finger of providence pointing to the best means of undoing this abominable criminal not that i intended to risk my neck for any ten thousand francs he chose to offer me but as the trusted guide of this ingenious babies i could convoy them not to st claude as he blandly believed but straight into the arms of leroux and the customs officials then that is understood he said in his usual dictatorial manner taking my consent for granted ten thousand francs and you will accompany these gentlemen and their babies as far as st claude i am a poor man sir i responded meekly of course you are he broke in roughly then from a number of papers which lay upon the table he selected one which he held out to me do you know st sir he asked yes i replied it's a short walk from gex this he added pointing to a paper which i had taken from him is a plan of the village and of the pass of serg close by study it carefully at some point some way up the pass which i have marked with a cross 
I and my men with the babies will be waiting for you tomorrow evening at eight o'clock. You cannot possibly fail to find the spot, for the plan is very accurate and very minute, and it is less than five hundred meters from the last house at the entrance of the pass. I shall escort the men until then, and hand them over into your charge for the mountain journey. Is that clear? Perfectly. Very well, then. You may go. The carriage is outside the door. You know your way. He dismissed me with a curt nod, and the next two minutes saw me outside this house of mystery, and installed inside the ramshackle vehicle on my way back to my lodgings. I was worn out with fatigue and excitement and I imagine that I slept most of the way. Certain it is that the journey home was not nearly so long as the outward had been. The rain was still coming down heavily, but I cared nothing about the weather, nothing about fatigue. My path to fame and fortune had been made easier for me than in my wildest dreams I would have dared to hope. In the morning I will see Leroux and make final arrangements for the capture of those impudent smugglers, and I thought the best way would be for him to meet me and the babies and the toys at the very outset of our journey, as I did not greatly relish the idea of crossing lonely and dangerous mountain paths in the company of these ruffians. I reached home without adventure. The vehicle drew up just outside my lodgings, and I was about to alight when my eyes were attracted by something white which lay on the front seat of the carriage, conspicuously placed so that the light from the inside lantern fell full upon it. I had been too tired and too dazed, I suppose, to notice the thing before. But now, on closer inspection, I saw that it was a note and that it was addressed to me. Monsieur Aristide Barrault, interpreter, and below my name were the words, very urgent. I took the note, feeling a thrill of excitement running through my veins at his touch. I alighted, and the vehicle immediately disappeared into the night. I had only caught one glimpse of the horses, and none at all of the coachman. Then I went straight into my room, and by the light of the table-lamp I unfolded and read the mysterious note. It bore no signature, but at the first words I knew that the writer was none other than the lovely young creature who had appeared to me like an angel of innocence in the midst of that den of thieves. Monsieur, she had written in a hand which had clearly been trembling with agitation. You are good, you are kind, I entreat you to be merciful. My dear mother, whom I worship, is sick with terror and misery. She will die if she remains any longer under the sway of that inhuman monster, who, alas, is my own brother. And if I lose her, I shall die too, for I should no longer have any one to stand between me and his cruelties. My dear mother has some relations living at St. Claude. She would have gone to them before now, but my brother keeps us both virtual prisoners here, and we have no means of arranging for such a perilous journey for ourselves. Now, by the most extraordinary stroke of good fortune, 
my brother will be absent all day to-morrow and the following night my dear mother and i feel that god himself is showing us the way to our release will you can you help us dear monsieur barot mother and i will be at gex to-morrow at one hour after sundown we will lie perdu in the little taverne du roi de rome where if you come to us you will find us waiting anxiously if you can do nothing to help us we must return broken-hearted to our hated prison but something in my heart tells me that you can help us all that we want is a vehicle of some sort and the escort of a brave man like yourself as far as st claude where our relatives will thank you on their knees for your kindness and generosity to two helpless miserable unprotected women and i will kiss your hands in unbounded gratitude and devotion it were impossible monsieur to tell you the varied emotions which filled my heart when i had perused that heart-rending appeal all my instincts of chivalry were aroused i was determined to do my duty to these helpless ladies as a man and as a gallant knight even before i finally went to bed i had settled in my mind what i meant to do fortunately it was quite possible for me to reconcile my duties to my emperor and those which i owed to myself in the matter of the reward for the apprehension of the smugglers with my burning desire to be the saviour and protector of the lovely creature whose beauty had inflamed my impressionable heart and to have my hands kissed by her in gratitude and devotion the next morning leroux and i were deep in our plans whilst we sipped our coffee outside the crane shawl he was beside himself with joy and excitement at the prospective hall which would of course redound enormously to his credit even though the success of the whole undertaking would be due to my acumen my resourcefulness and my pluck fortunately i found him not only ready but eager to render me what assistance he could in the matter of the two ladies who had thrown themselves so entirely on my protection we might get valuable information out of them he remarked in the excess of their gratitude they may betray many more secrets and nefarious doings of the firm of fournier frere which further proves i remarked how deeply you and monsieur le ministre of police are indebted to me over this affair he did not argue the point indeed we were both of us far too much excited to waste words in useless bickerings our plans for the evening were fairly simple we both poured over the map which fournier bertie had given me until we felt that we could reach blindfolded the spot which had been marked with a cross we then arranged that leroux should betake himself thither with a strong posse of gendarmes during the day and lie hidden in the vicinity until such time as i myself appeared upon the scene identified my friends of the night before parlayed with them for a minute or two and finally retired leaving the law in all its majesty as represented by leroux to deal with the rascals 
In the meantime I also mapped out for myself my own share in this night's adventurous work. I had hired a vehicle to take me as far as St. Serge. Here I intended to leave it at the local inn, and then proceed on foot up the mountain pass to the appointed spot. As soon as I had seen the smuggler safely in the hands of Leroux and the gendarme, I would make my way back to St. Serge as rapidly as I could, step into my vehicle, drive like the wind back to Gex, and place myself at the disposal of my fair angel and her afflicted mother. Leroux promised me that at the custom station on the French frontier the officials would look after me and the ladies, and that a pair of fresh horses would be ready to take us straight on to St. Claude, which, if all was well, we could then reach by daybreak. Having settled all these matters, we parted company, he to arrange his own affairs with the commissary of police and the customs officials, and I to await with as much patience as I could the hour when I could start for St. Serge. The night, just as I anticipated, promised to be very dark, a thin drizzle which wetted the unfortunate pedestrian to the marrow had replaced the torrential rain of the previous day. Twilight was closing in very fast. In the late autumn afternoon I drew to St. Serge, after which I left the chaise in the village and boldly started to walk up the mountain pass. I had studied the map so carefully that I was quite sure of my way, but though my appointment with the rascals was for eight o'clock, I wished to reach the appointed spot before the last flicker of grey light had disappeared from the sky. Soon I had left the last house well behind me. Boldly I plunged into the narrow path. The loneliness of the place was indescribable. Every step which I took on the stony track seemed to rouse the echoes of the grim heights which rose precipitously on either side of me, and in my mind I felt aghast at the extraordinary courage of those men who, like Aristide Fournier and his gang, choose to affront such obvious and manifold dangers as these frowning mountain regions held for them for the sake of paltry lucre. I had walked according to my reckoning, just upon five hundred metres through the gorge, when on ahead I perceived the flicker of lights which appeared to be moving to and fro. The silence and loneliness no longer seemed to be absolute. A few metres from where I was, men were living and breathing, plotting and planning, unconscious of the net which the unerring hand of a skilful fowler had drawn round them and their misdeeds. The next moment I was challenged by a peremptory halt. Recognition followed. Monsieur Ernest Bertie, or Aristide Fournier, whichever he was, acknowledged with a few words my punctuality. Whilst through the gloom I took a rapid stock of his little party, I saw the vague outline of three men and a couple of mules, which appeared to be heavily laden. They were assembled on a flat piece of ground which appeared like a roofless cavern carved out of the mountainside. The walls of rock around them afforded them both cover and refuge. They seemed in no hurry to start. 
They had the long night before them, so one of them remarked in English. However, presently Monsieur Fournier Bertie gave the signal for the start to be made, he himself preparing to take leave of his men. Just at that moment my ears caught the welcome sound of the tramping of feet, and before any of the rascals there could realize what was happening, their way was spared by Leroux and his gendarme, who loudly gave the order. Hands up in the name of the emperor! I was only conscious of a confused murmur of voices, of the click of firearms, of words of command passing to and fro, and of several violent oaths uttered in the not unfamiliar voice of Monsieur Aristide Fournier. But already I had spied Leroux. I only exchanged a few words with him, for indeed my share of the evening's work was done as far as he was concerned and I made haste to retrace my steps through the darkness and the rain along the lonely mountain path towards the goal where chivalry and manly ardour beckoned to me from afar. I found my vehicle waiting for me at Saint-Serg, and by the promise of an additional pourboire I succeeded in making the driver whip up his horse to some purpose. Less than an hour later we drew up at Gex, outside the little inn, pretentiously called Le Roi de Rome. On alighting I was met by the proprietress, who, in answer to my inquiry after two ladies who had arrived that afternoon, at once conducted me upstairs. Already my mind was busy conjuring up visions of the fair lady of Jester Eve. The landlady threw open a door and ushered me into a small room, which reeked of stale food and damp clothes. I stepped in and found myself face to face with a large and exceedingly ugly old woman, who rose with difficulty from the sofa as I entered. Monsieur Aristide Barreau, she said as soon as the landlady had closed the door behind me. Uh, at your service, madame, I stammered, but I was indeed almost aghast. Never in my life had I seen anything so grotesque as this woman. To begin with, she was more than ordinarily stout and unwieldy. Indeed, she appeared like a veritable mountain of flesh. But what was so disturbing to my mind was that she was nothing but a hideous caricature of her lovely daughter, whose dainty features she grotesquely recalled. Her face was seamed and wrinkled. Her white hair was plastered down above her yellow forehead. She wore an old-fashioned bonnet tied under her chin, and her huge bulk was draped in a large-patterned cashmere shawl. You expected to see my dear daughter beside me, my good Monsieur Barreau, she said, after a while speaking with remarkable gentleness and dignity. I confess, madam, I murmured. Ah, the darling has sacrificed herself for my sake. We found today that though my son was out of the way, he had set his abominable servants to watch over us. Soon we realized that we could not both get away. It meant one of us staying behind to act the part of unconcern and to throw dust in the eyes of our jailers. 
my daughter ah she is an angel monsieur feared that the disappointment and my son's cruelty when he returned on the morrow and found that he had been tricked would seriously endanger my life she decided that i must go and that she would remain but madame i protested i know monsieur she rejoined with the same calm dignity which already had commanded my respect i know that you think me a selfish old woman but my angel she is an angel of a truth made all the arrangements and i could not help but obey her but have no fears for her safety monsieur my son would not dare lay hands on her as often as he has done on me angele will be brave and our relations at st claude will directly we arrive make arrangements to go and fetch her and bring her back to me my brother is an influential man he would never have allowed my son to martyrize me and angele had he known what we have had to endure of course i could not then tell her that all her fears for herself and the lovely angele could now be laid to rest her ruffianly son was even now being conveyed by leroux and his gendarmes to the frontier where the law would take its course i was indeed not sorry for him i was not sorry to think that he would end his evil life upon the guillotine or the gallows i was only grieved for angele who would spend a night and a day perhaps more in agonized suspense knowing nothing of the events which at one great swoop would free her and her beloved mother from the tyranny of a hated brother and send him to expiate his crimes not only did i grieve sir for the tender victim of that man's brutality but i trembled for her safety i did not know what minions or confederates fournier bertie had left in the lonely house yonder or under what orders they were in case he did not return from his nocturnal expedition indeed for the moment i felt so agitated at thought of that beautiful angel's peril that i looked down with anger and scorn at the fat old woman who ought to have remained beside her daughter to comfort and to shield her i was on the point of telling her everything and dragging her back to her post of duty which she would never have relinquished fortunately my sense of what i owed to my professional dignity prevented my taking such a step it was clearly not for me to argue my first duty was to stand by this helpless woman in distress who had been committed to my charge and to convey her safety to st claude after which i could see to it that mademoiselle angele was brought along too as quickly as influential relatives could contrive in the meanwhile i derived some consolation from the thought that at any rate for the next four-and-twenty hours the lovely creature would be safe no news of the arrest of aristide fournier could possibly reach the lonely house until i myself could return thither 
and take her under my protection. So I said nothing, but with perfect gallantry, just as if fat Madame Fournier had been a young and beautiful woman, I begged her to give herself the trouble of mounting into the carriage which was waiting for her. It took time and trouble, sir, to hoist that mass of solid flesh into the vehicle, and the driver grumbled not a little at the unexpected weight. However, his horses were powerful, wiry mountain ponies, and we made headway through the darkness and along the smooth departmental road at moderate speed. I may say that it was a miserable, uncomfortable journey for me, sitting as I was forced to do on the narrow front seat of the carriage, without support for my head or room for my legs. But Madame's bulk filled the whole of the back seat, and it never seemed to enter her head that I too might like the use of a cushion. However, even the worst moments and the weariest journeys must come to an end, and we reached the frontier in the small hours of the morning. Here we found the customs officials ready to render us any service we might require. Leroux had not failed to order the fresh relay of horses, and whilst these were being put to the police officers of the station, gave Madame and myself some excellent coffee. Beyond the formal, Madame has nothing to declare for His Majesty's customs, and my companions equally formal, nothing monsieur except my personal belongings they did not ply us with questions and after half an hour's halt we again proceeded on our way we reached st claude at daybreak and following madame's directions the driver pulled up in front of a large house in the avenue du jura again there was the same difficulty in hoisting the unwieldy lady out of the vehicle but this time, in response to my vigorous pull at the outside bell, the concierge and another man came out of the house, and very respectfully they approached Madame, and conveyed her into the house. While they did so, she apparently gave them some directions about myself, for unknown the concierge returned, and with extreme politeness told me that Madame Fournier greatly hoped that I would stay in St. Claude a day or two, as she had the desire to see me again very soon. She also honoured me with an invitation to dine with her that same evening at seven o'clock. This was the first time I noticed that the name Fournier was actually used in connection with any of the people with whom I had become so dramatically involved. Not that I had ever doubted the identity of the ruffianly Ernest Bertie, Still, it was very satisfactory to have my surmises confirmed. I concluded that the fine house in the Avenue du Jura belonged to Madame Fournier's brother, and I vaguely wondered who he was. The invitation to dinner had certainly been given in her name, and the servants had received her with a show of respect which suggested that she was more than a guest in her brother's house. Be that as it may, I betook myself for the nuns to the Hotel de Moines, in the centre of the town, and killed time for the rest of the day as best as I could. For one thing, I needed a rest after the emotions and the fatigue of the past forty-eight hours. 
Remember, sir, I had not slept for two nights, and had spent the last eight hours on the narrow front seat of a jolting chaise. So I had a good rest in the afternoon, and at seven o'clock I presented myself once more at the house in the Avenue du Jura. My intention was to retire early to bed after spending an agreeable evening with the family, who would no doubt overwhelm me with their gratitude, and at daybreak I would drive back to Gex after I had heard all the latest news from Leroux. I confess that it was with a pardonable feeling of agitation that I tugged at the wrought iron bell pull on the perron of the magnificent mansion in the Avenue du Jura. To begin with, I felt somewhat rueful at having to appear before ladies at this hour in my travelling clothes, and then you will admit, sir, that it was a somewhat awkward predicament for a man of highly sensitive temperament to meet on terms of equality a refined if stout lady whose son he had just helped to send to the gallows. Fortunately, there was no likelihood of Madame Fournier being as yet aware of this unpleasant fact. Even if she did know at this hour that her son's elect adventure had come to grief, she could not possibly in her mind connect me with his ill-fortune. So I allowed the sumptuous valet to take my hat and coat, and I followed him with as calm a demeanour as I could assume up the richly carpeted stairs. Obviously the relatives of Madame Fournier were more than well-to-do. Everything in the house showed evidence of luxury, not to say wealth. I was ushered into an elegant saloon, wherein every corner showed traces of dainty feminine hands. There were embroidered silk cushions upon the sofa, lace covers upon the tables, whilst a work-basket filled with a riot of many-coloured silks stood invitingly open and through the apartment, sir, a scent of violets lingered and caressed my nostrils, reminding me of a beauteous creature in distress, whom it had been my good fortune to succour. I had waited less than five minutes when I heard a swift elastic step approaching through the next room, and a second or so later, before I had time to take up an appropriate posture, the door was thrown open and the exquisite vision of my waking dreams, the beautiful Angèle, stood smiling before me. Mademoiselle, I stammered somewhat clumsily, for of a truth I was hardly able to recover my breath, and surprise had well-nigh robbed me of speech. How comes it that you are here? She only smiled in reply, the most adorable smile I had ever seen on any human face so full of joy of mischief i of triumph was it i asked after madame again she smiled and said madame was in her room resting from the fatigues of her journey i had scarce recovered from my initial surprise when another more complete still confronted me this was the appearance of monsieur aristide fournier whom I had fondly imagined already expiating his crimes in a frontier prison, but who now entered also smiling, also extremely pleasant, who greeted me as if we were lifelong friends, and who then, I scarce could believe my eyes, placed his arm affectionately round his sister's waist, 
whilst she turned her sweet face up to his and gave him a fond, nay, a loving look. A loving look to him who was a brute and a bully, and a miscreant amenable to the gallows. True, this appearance was completely changed. His eyes were bright and kindly. His mouth continued to smile. His manner was urbane in the extreme when he finally introduced himself to me as Aristide Fournier, my dear Monsieur Ratichon, at your service. He knew my name. He knew who I was whilst I... I had to pass my hand once or twice over my forehead and to close and reopen my eyes several times, for, of a truth, it all seemed like a dream. I tried to stammer out a question or two, but I could only gasp, and the lovely Angèle appeared highly amused at my distress. "'Let us dine,' she said gaily, "'after which you may ask as many questions as you like. In very truth I was in no mood for dinner. Puzzlement and anxiety appeared to grip me by the throat and to choke me. It was all very well for the beautiful creature to laugh and to make merry. She had cruelly deceived me, played upon the cords of my sensitive heart for purposes which no doubt would presently be made clear. But in the meanwhile, since the smuggling of the English files had been successful, as it apparently was, what had become of Leroux and his gendarmes? What tragedy had been enacted in the narrow gorge of saint serge And what, oh, what had become of my hopes of that five thousand francs for the apprehension of the smugglers promised me by Leroux? Can you wonder that for the moment the very thought of dinner was abhorrent to me, but only for the moment. The next a sumptuous valet had thrown open the folding doors, and down the vista of the stately apartment I perceived a table richly laden with china and glass and silver, whilst a distinctly savoury odour was wafted to my nostrils. "'We will not answer a single question.' the fair Angèle reiterated with adorable determination, until after we have dined. What, sir, would you have done in my place? I believe that never until this hour had Hector Ratichon reached to such a sublimity of manner. I bowed with perfect dignity in token of obedience to the fair creature, sir. Then, without a word, I offered her my arm. She placed her hand upon it, and I conducted her to the dining-room, whilst Aristide Fournier, who at this hour should have been on a fair way to being hanged, followed in our wake. Ah! It seemed indeed a lovely dream, one that lasted through an excellent and copious dinner, and which turned to delightful reality when over a final glass of succulent Madeira Monsieur Aristide Fournier slowly counted out one hundred notes, worth one hundred francs each, and presented these to me with a gracious nod. "'Your fee, monsieur,' he said, "'and allow me to say that never have I paid out so large a sum with such a willing hand.' 
"'But I have done nothing,' I murmured from out of the depths of my bewilderment. Mademoiselle Angèle and Monsieur Fournier looked at one another, and, no doubt, I presented a very comical spectacle, for both of them burst into an uncontrollable fit of laughter. "'Indeed, monsieur,' quoth Monsieur Fournier, as soon as he could speak coherently, "'you have done everything that you set out to do, and done it with perfect chivalry.' You conveyed the toys safely over the frontier as far as St. Claude. But, but how, I stammered, how? Again Mademoiselle Angers laughed, and through the ripples of her laughter came her merry words. Maman was very fat, was she not, my good Monsieur Ratichon? Did you not think she was extraordinarily like me? I caught the glance in her eyes, and they were literally glowing with mischief. Then, all of a sudden, I understood. She had impersonated a fat mother, covered her lovely face with lines, worn a disfiguring wig and an antiquated bonnet, and round her slender figure she had tucked away thousands of packages of English files. I could only gasp. Astonishment, not to say admiration at her pluck, literally took my breath away. But Monsieur Bertie, I murmured, my mind in a turmoil, my thoughts running riot through my brain. The Englishman, the mules, the packs. Monsieur Bertie, as you see, stands before you now, in the person of Monsieur Fonnier, she replied. The Englishmen were three faithful servants who threw dust not only in your eyes, my dear Monsieur Ratichon, but in those of the customs officials, while the packs contained harmless personal luggage, which was taken by your friend and his gendarmes to the customs station at Mijoux. And there, after much swearing, equally solemnly released with many apologies to Monsieur Fournier, who was allowed to proceed unmolested on his way, and who arrived here safely this afternoon, whilst Maman divested herself of her fat and once more became the slender Madame Aristide Fournier at your service. She bobbed me a dainty curtsy, and I could only try and hide the pain which this last cruel stab had inflicted on my heart. She was not mademoiselle after all, and henceforth it would even be wrong to indulge in dreams of her. But the ten thousand francs crackled pleasantly in my breast pocket, and when I finally took leave of Monsieur Aristide Fournier and his charming wife, I was an exceedingly happy man. But Leroux never forgave me. Of what he suspected me I do not know, or if he suspected me at all. He certainly must have known about fat maman from the customs officials who had given us coffee at Mijoux, but he never mentioned the subject to me at all, nor has he spoken to me since that memorable night. To one of his colleagues he once said that no words in his vocabulary could possibly be adequate to express his feelings. End of chapter 5, part 2 Read 
by Lars Rolander.